Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmion, and with me in the studio is my colleague, Niklas Sabos. How are you doing today? I had a terribly bad lunch, which I managed to turn into a good experience by not eating much. So, all good. How about you, Eddie? Well, my lunch was uh, much better than yours, so I'm uh, fat and happy here. Today, we are excited to talk with Jeff Graham, who is co-founder and manager of the hedge fund Bandera Partners. He has served on several public company boards, and he taught value investing at the legendary Columbia Business School, famous for both Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Jeff's book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism, was named one of the best books of 2016 by the Financial Times. And Warren Buffett also included it in the Berkshire Hathaway 2018 annual meeting bookstore. So uh, why have we chosen this book, Nicholas? So we think it's necessary for shareholders to understand how crucial corporate governance is. And uh, many investors are very focused on the products or the market potential. But even if a company performs well, the value is not always directed to shareholders. It's because managers and boards can overstep their responsibility and uh, also miss out on future business opportunities due to short-term thinking. But... It goes both ways. So just as companies can take advantage of shareholders, shareholders can take advantage of companies for the good and bad of other shareholders. So what is Dear Chairman about? Yeah, the book is about shareholder activism. That is when an investor thinks a company is being mismanaged and uh, tries to influence it into doing something, which, for example, can be to pay a dividend. And the purpose of activists... have historically been to gain economic profits, and that is what is mostly captured in in Dear Chairman, the book. But it can also be to uh, influence certain decisions in, for example, environmental or social aspects. Uh, But how is the structure of the book? So The book includes eight activist campaigns from uh, the 1920s to uh, to 2005, uh, when investors have written a letter to the management and the board with uh, various success. And these are real investing legends, such as uh, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, and uh, Carl Icahn. And a quote from the book that explains the importance of the topic is, shareholder activism can produce stellar investment returns by exploiting weaknesses in public company governance. And from the framework of Red Eye Quality Rating, what will today's episode focus on? So those of you familiar with our quality rating and those who have heard our previous episodes, it consists of uh, three different categories. It's business, people and financials. And uh, this is something that our analysts use when they analyze companies to determine the cost of capital and the risk in a company. So the quality rating consists of more than 100 questions and a lot of them are about people, which we think is very central when analyzing a business. And today's episode is very focused on that area. Uh, the behavior of the board of directors is really a key pillar of, uh, of the people rating. And that is because they are responsible for governing the company and they're supposed to make sure that managers' interests are aligned with those of the shareholders and other stakeholders. So included in uh, this rating, there are a couple of questions that investors can find useful. For example, if the company is communicating in an honest way, Are they allocating capital in a good way? Is the CEO pay reasonable? And uh, are they abusing option plans? Uh, And so on. So we think this is very aligned with uh, today's book, Dear Chairman, 
by Jeff Graham. And here comes our conversation. Hello, Jeff, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Where are you? Thank I am in Brooklyn in my basement. Um, you know, my computer at work actually just died. So uh -huh. I'm at home like while I wait for the new one to show up. Um, I see. And thank, and thank you all for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And we think your book, uh, Dear Chairman, is really a must read for any board of directors, managers and shareholders. And one reason is that we think many shareholders don't understand or they don't think about like the fundamental relationship between the board and the shareholders and management. So just to start off, like what would you say is the role of the board of directors? Well, you know, the board of directors, like their main role is to pick the CEO, right? Like, you know, to hire the CEO, um, to hold the CEO accountable, and then to provide support. And then there's also kind of a risk management function of the board too, like to be sure that the company is in, you know, compliance with all the things that they need to be in compliance with. But I would say like the fundamental goal is choosing the right CEO and putting them in the best position to succeed. And I think, you know, like, like a lot of times, like you'll talk to public company shareholders or, and they'll talk about how it's the board's job to drive shareholder value and to do all these like uh, specific things to add value. But I like to, uh, to think of it in a more fundamental way as the main thing is just to pick the right person to lead the company. Yeah, and in the book, you really write well about the intermediary role between shareholders and managers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I do feel like like, like that is a topic that hasn't been discussed that much in recent years. You know, there was a lot more talk about it in the 80s when there was um, the boom in, in corporate rating. Um, and so I felt that I had a story to like to tell about that topic. And then like that, like was kind of a good platform to tell a broader business history that had investing lessons with it. And so I think the thing I like about my book, which I feel like I can say now, cause I'm five years removed from it is um, like, I do think that even if you don't care about corporate governance, but you do care about investing and, and business history. Um, I do think there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, you know, that can appeal to like to lots of people that are, you know, that are interested in business. Yeah, about the history, it's really interesting because I mean, the chairman really takes us through eight activist campaigns, but it's also, as you say, it's a history lesson of stock ownership in, in the US. Um, and I was thinking it would be interesting if, if you could take us back to the early days of the 20th century where you start the, the story. Um, how how would you say that stock ownership have uh, evolved since then? Yeah, I mean, in a in a funny way, that you know dynamic, like the way that ownership has evolved, is kind of the key theme of the book, and it kind of drives the history, right? So the first chapter is uh, Benjamin Graham. Um, he does an activist campaign um, um, against a company called the Northern Pipeline Company, which it was a part of you know, the, like the Rockefeller empire before they broke it apart. And at that point in time, it was like, it tended to be a very concentrated investor base for most public companies. It, 
like except for the major railroads, like there weren't lots of, you know, like individual retail investors in stocks. Like, you know, like in a given company, like a Northern Pipeline, like you had concentrated interests, like the Rockefellers and, you know, Ben Graham, who ran, you know, essentially what would be called a hedge fund today. Um, was a little bit of an innovator in that field. There weren't a lot of investment partnerships like his. And so he kind of came into this you know, world where there was a lot of, you know, concentrated vested interests. And then, you know, what you see as as the book progresses is the way that changes through history. And, you know, by the 1950s, you know, an interesting thing, at the, uh, I mean, um, had happened where the markets had become a, like a lot more popular with retail and you know investors. Like the stock exchanges had done these huge campaigns to promote you know um, individual ownership of stocks, and you had this great diffusion of ownership. And you know, with the diffusion of ownership, that like ultimately results in a change in oversight. And what really kind of drives the book is this dynamic of, you know, like ultimately in shareholder activism, it's the shareholder base of the, like of the, the company that kind of defines like, um, you know, how the activist, you know, can execute change and if they can execute change. And as that dynamic, you know, changes through history where you had this kind of extreme concentration in the 20s, it broadly diffused into the 1950s where lots of the big companies were really um, owned by individual investors. And then in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, it really reconcentrated back into fiduciary owners, you know, like insurance companies, pension funds, um, investment managers. And that change and arc, you know, you know kind of drives the narrative of the book. And how would you say, uh, I mean, most recently I've been, uh, I mean, we, we've all been studying the meme stock phenomenon and, and in a way that's also making um, retail investors that are, as you say, fragmented, but they are getting more concentrated when they... When they band together. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic and, you know, it's yet to really have an impact on governance and... And to be clear, this is like a thing that like we've definitely, you know, seen through history before, like you saw in the dot com boom, you know, for instance, you know, a great increase in, in, you know, a retail ownership, you know, but I think in terms of governance, I think the kind of the big dynamic of recent years, um, you know, which even in my book, like, cause I wrote the book in, in 2015, you know, like it's only beginning to rear its head then is, you know, the emergence of the kind of um, the big index funds like BlackRock and Vanguard um, beginning to flex their muscles. And it's interesting because, you know, there's a faint echo in the 1980s, there is this awakening of the big pension funds and, in, you know, there's a chapter on Ross Perot where the big pension funds, you know, kind of snap out of it and they're like, wait, you know, we're these big fiduciaries and like we have this responsibility to be active owners, um, you know, not active, you know, from an investment perspective, but active on the governance side. And you've really seen in the past like five years, the vanguards and the, and the Black Rocks, you know, you know, kind of come to the same realization. 
And I think that's the story of the current era. And I think if I were going to do like a new chapter, it would have to be some situation with, with, you know, Vanguard or BlackRock. Yeah, we touched upon this with uh, Jake Taylor from Farnham Street Investments that we talked with in our second episode. And he, he he talked a lot about like that institutions today are not as long-term as they should be and that they could take more responsibility. What do what are, what is your view on that? I mean, I think it's interesting. Like I think that in general it's very hard to be a long-term thinker and it's not it's like it's not just like the big institutions it's like um every investor um every ceo um every manager you know one of the great uh, challenges of business is you know if you have like a business de- you know decision that you need to make and the best long-term outcome is a very bad short-term outcome it's going to be hard to make that decision and i think that that rears its head in lots of different ways um, including in governance and you know like i think that vanguard and blackrock to their credit have realized you know we are the ultimate long-term owner like we're literally not going to sell these stocks you know they're going to be in business for a very long time and they're going to be long long-term holders and they have um, have realized you know that like you know that we need like you know like to own our shares and from a governance perspective, have that mindset. And the issue, I mean, I think that's like a very noble way to think about it. And I, and, and, I, and I think they're right, but do they have the capability to really do that? And they don't really have the, the company specific knowledge, you know, on a company by company basis to do it. So that's the hard part. So they're trying, and I think they have good intentions, but they can really drop the ball sometimes. And they don't really have a very big incentive to actually do that. Their shareholders, like the ones who have money in their funds, are not thinking too much about that. Yeah, that's like the funny part, right? It's like they clearly do have a big incentive like to maximize long-term performance, but really the biggest incentive is not to have like a shit show on their hands that that they'll be blamed for, right? It's like, you know, they don't want to have like to be the biggest uh, holder of an Enron. And then like for like for people to say, "Hey, like you guys were the biggest, you know, shareholder, like this happened on your watch." Um and so like in a sense like the incentives aren't, you know, you know, perfectly aligned. But again, I mean, that's a thing, you know, like I was actually just um, emailing with another investor about a, like a stock and and he talked about how the the CEO of this particular company is aligned with the shareholders and I pointed out that like like you like you never really get perfect alignment and I think that is clearly the the case in you know in governance it's like like the shareholders and the board and the management you know that's this like what well, kind of three-headed monster like that, you know, that controls a company and like, they're never in perfect alignment as, you know, like as hard as you might try to make that happen. Going back a bit to the, I mean, the main theme of the book, uh, activism. Um, mm-hmm. I reckon you, you were a former activist, but not as much anymore. If I, if I get it right, is that correct? Well, you know, I, 
um, have done a lot of activism. Um, I serve on three public company boards now. Um, I'll probably continue to serve on boards. Um, we've done a proxy fight, but you know, my day job is, is I'm, um, a fund manager of, you know, and my fund, it does, you know, a value oriented investing and like, I'm really looking for well, you know, run businesses (laughs) that, um, don't need my input. So if I'm involved as an activist, it's because something has gone wrong. So I'm not the kind of investor that kind of like looks for a fight. So I think like when people say activist investor, like they usually will mean a fund that looks for, you know, situations where they can add value, you know, by shaking things up at the board level. And I think that's, you know, that's essentially um, not what I do. Like I look for companies where I don't have to shake things up at the board level and at least like because I invest in these like like a lot of small illiquid companies, uh, sometimes they knew like they do need to be shaken up, and so at least we kind of have that tool in our toolbox if we need it, and and I think that can be helpful, you know, well, you know, just like so people know that you're serious and that you will fight uh, to the end if you need to, um, but I don't think of myself as an activist, and you know, I don't particularly think of myself as a as a great board member. Well, you're, you're, you're at least uh, explaining um, the role of activism really, really well in the book. And I was thinking, um, for those who haven't read the book, could you explain a chapter that you like the most uh, to write? Sure. Perhaps I'll look at the book. It's been so long. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite chapter is probably um, the Ross Perot chapter. Uh, you know, one kind of like one thing about this book is because um, I made it a, like, you know, a narrative history, you know, when I first began to think about the structure of the book, each case was essentially going to have a theme and it was not necessarily going to be like a linear history. Like it was just going to be this kind of discussion of, of governance with a lot of lessons. And like, I wasn't necessarily going to put the thing in chronological order, but then as I began to write it, it just became clear that like, this also works as a, you know, as a, like as a narrative history, well, as a linear history. So, you know, why not, you know, like, like incorporate that too and put the thing in order. Um, The point of all this rambling is just to say that I do think that the book is backloaded. I think um, the last five chapters are, like are vastly superior to the first three. Um, And a lot of it is just like by virtue of the situations being newer, there's more material. I can talk to participants, like, you know, I can add more value as the narrator. So I really like the last half of the book and um, the Ross Perot chapter. It's fun because Ross Perot is interesting. It's fun because he's doing activism against uh, General Motors, and you know that company has 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 you know a very interesting history through which a lot of American business history is rooted. You know, so that's like you know GM is a, is like is a like is a, is a foundational company um, in like in terms of, you know, like, like American business. And so that gave me a lot of leeway um, 
uh, you know, to make it like, you know, like, like a fun, engaging chapter, but I'll just explain. So, so Ross Perot was this very famous um, American businessman. He founded um, a company called EDS that was, you know, what well, kind of this early stock market high flyer. Um, there's like, you know, uh, there's a, like a very famous book called The Go-Go Years by John Brooks. Um, that's, you know, a classic in, you know, um, on, uh, on, um, you know, stock market history. And I, like, I think the opening chapter is about this day when the market crashes, when uh, Ross Perot on paper has lost, you know, some tremendous, like, you know, $500 million on paper. It's like the, like the biggest, you know, one day loss in history for one person, like something like that. I mean, like the numbers all seem quaint to us now. Um, but, you know, you know, you know, but suffice it to say that like, that, like that he was like the Elon Musk of his day. He was like the, the technology, you know, you know, company founder who was brash. He was, you know, magnetic. Um, the press uh, paid a lot of attention to him. And uh, he was like a kind of like new era business leader. And GM bought EDS. And as a part of that deal, they put Ross Perot on the board of directors. And, you know, GM at that time was, you know, the dominant car maker in the US. And, you know, they like had even... Um, had to kind of depress their business intentionally to keep their market share low because they were so dominant and, and, you know, they didn't, you know, I want to get in like in antitrust uh, trouble, but beginning in the 1970s, um, they began to get chipped away at by the, you know, the Japanese car makers, and that began to really accelerate through the 80s. And so by the time that GM adds, you know, Ross Perot to this board, um, you know, they're kind of beginning to flounder. Uh, they're beginning to, to struggle. And they're seen as this like overly bureaucratic, you know, old world, you know, business that needs to be shaken up. And they bring on, you know, Ross Perot specifically to do that. And this is the story of like what happens, you know, like when those, you know, you know, like when GM and Ross Perot collide and what happens is it's a, it's a gigantic shit show. And, you know, Ross Perot ultimately leaves. He gets bought off the board. They buy back the shares of GM that they gave him, you know, when they purchased EDS for a gigantic premium and Ross Perot like effectively sticks it to the shareholders, you know, like he says, look, this is ridiculous. If this, if the shareholders let this happen, like they're paying me this huge amount of money just to leave. It was it's $700 abusive, million. Dollars, you know, right? Yeah. It's an abuse of shareholders. And if they have any will spine, then like they'll do something about it. And so this is like about um, how the shareholders, you know, slowly get awakened by this whole situation. And it's interesting because in the 1980s, there were lots of abuses on shareholders. There were lots of these, uh, you know, takeovers, you know, you know, led by, you know, by, um, you know, uh, insiders or outsiders, but, you know, where essentially everyone was getting rich off them except the shareholders and like these big pension funds, like figure out what's happening and they're angry about it. And GM is kind of this like tipping point where they're like, okay, like, 
you know, for years we have said, if we don't agree with what's happening, then we will just, you know, um, uh, get rid of our stock. Like if we don't like it, we sell. And with GM, they were finally like, well, you know what? Like we can't just, you know, sell GM. You have to own GM. It's like, you know, this like blue chip uh, stock that everyone owned. And so they, you know, they, like they realize that they have to do a better job um, on governance. So in a in a way, he succeeded anyway. I mean, Ross Perot. It's funny because he both got paid. <laughs> it's like they, I mean, you know, they let it happen because um, it kind of happened fast and they moved a bit slow, and but it caused this awakening because they knew that that. Like it was a debacle that, you know, should not have happened. And so Perot, he kind of danced through a lot of these well situations where he kind of got to like the benefits of both sides of a situation. He kind of got to be the hero when he was the guy that got, you know, like in the U.S., like we call it green mailed when you're kind of bought out like at above market, which is a real abuse of shareholders. Um, usually the green mailers are, you know, the guys like, uh, you know, Carl Icahn who don't necessarily get like to walk away with a good reputation. Um, but Ross Perot, you know, um, uh, you know, walked into the, the, like the sunset with his, you know, $700 million. <laughs> <laughs> A fascinating story. Are there any lessons for you, like an, as an investor or something you have used from this specific story? Or is it just your pattern recognition being better? I mean, that whole, like, you know, well, writing that whole chapter just involved all of this, um, you know, background reading on GM. And GM like itself is just completely fascinating. Um, um, Alfred Sloan's book, uh, My Life, at, wait, is it called My Life at General Motors? Yeah. Boy, my Quite brain, true. like in five years, I like, you know, haven't talked about this stuff. It's just a fascinating book. And it's a, like a lot about, you know, well, bringing financial discipline and, and a focus on return on, you know, invested capital to a big business. And there's just a lot like, of, you know, of lessons like about business that you get, um, you, you know, from reading about GM. There's a whole thing. Um, in that chapter about John DeLorean, um, who is a former GM engineer, who's who's probably the most famous now because he made the car that is in the movie Back to the Future. But he's an amazing guy. I mean, he was like, well, actually the Elon Musk of his time. Um, amazing guy. And just his whole story is just, you know, filled with, you know, tons of business lessons. And um, his book, which I talk about, um, um, on a clear day, you can see General Motors um, is a fantastic book. So they're just like, we're so many little takeaways. So reading all of this material and preparing and you write in the preface of the book that you became increasingly cynical about how companies are run and that you lack faith in many management teams. Has this changed in the last five years since the book came out? I mean, it really, that came not through my research of the book, but that came through just, you know, being a fund manager. But, you know, to be clear, like I mostly invest in this like little corner of the of the market of, you know, companies that are less than $500 million market caps and a lot that are less than a hundred. And again, like, like it, 
you know, there's always incentive alignment issues anyway, but in a lot of the, of the, like, like of the smaller companies, like there's like actual self-dealing. And so like, I do feel like one thing that I've kind of learned over time is that incentives are never perfectly aligned. And, you know, if you're a, like a good fiduciary, if you really care about the shareholders, it's not going to be because of like this, like the structure of your compensation or whatever. It's going to be because it's just this, like, like, you know, like you have this, like, in, you know, like inherent, um, you know, interest in being a fiduciary. Um, so that kind of bred the cynicism of just well, seeing over and like, an, like an over again, uh, situations where, um, people screwed shareholders and a lot of it is like you know like a lot of the 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 better management teams have like learned to say all the right things but then when push comes to shove they won't necessarily do the right things for shareholders if it's not the right thing for themselves but you know uh, i say that in the context of of you know well smaller crappier companies and i think to paint the entire you know, public company business world with that brush is not fair. Like I think like when you get into bigger companies, you do get just, you know, a better level directors, better level managers, you know, more professional organizations. So, um, you know, I'm still cynical, but I do think there are a lot of good people out there doing good work that like are trying hard to do the right thing. And, and particularly at big companies, I think that, like that governance has vastly improved, um, you know, like, especially, well, you know, well, since the era of Ross Perot, you just have a lot more people paying attention and like the shareholders, you know, care more than they did then. And it just all feeds itself um, to better governance. Are there still problems? Yes. You know, will there always be problems? Yes. But is there always going to, you know, but, you know, but can there be continued improvement? Like I think, that there can and will like like I think that things are getting better. Yeah, I see it like two categories almost. Like one is those really genuine passion business leaders who are just dedicated and just do whatever. They don't even have to get paid for it. They just love what they do. And then there's the others mm-hmm. who you need to keep them under control and maybe with the right measures you can keep that governance like tight and good, but it's not uh, that's right it's, it's kind of work and out. there's also like and there's also situations where you think you have the former <laughs> it's like they'll, you know like yeah. you'll be dealing with a with a person who says all the like the right things and like they'll do all the right things until the very moment when you know yeah like, how do you judge a, that like you know there's a deal on the table that is bad for shareholders and they take it you know yeah. so it's just hard like you just can't really bank like on anything like on that front. And so as an investor, like as a professional, you know, like I'm investor, you just can, it's yeah. Like I try not to, to ever take the risk of bad governance off the table. It's always there and you need to realize it's always there. Have you experienced it yourself when, when sitting on, on uh, boards that uh, the other directors have taken a decision that you feel is wrong? Yeah. And have you? Because I think Buffett speaks about this a lot, and and he says that even though he more or less knows that the decision is bad, he he goes with it because it's really yeah. hard to 
take a decision uh, yeah that's not uh, in the interest of the, of the other other directors yeah i mean I, I mean i've been on boards where i mean i was on a board where the chairman of the board like received you know um indications you know will uh you know will take out interest like you know from private equity investors and the chairman did not tell the independent board members um, you know, oh. so I've been like involved in a lot of situations where it's like that. But, you know, usually if I'm on the board, it comes with a like a, you know, like a changeover of regime. And so um, usually like I'm not in the room for that stuff. I'm usually just the angry shareholder <laughs> like that. Like know. like us. <laughs> yeah, because I think Buffett, uh, he, he also just says that. What can you do? The only thing you can yeah. do as a director is basically leave. Yeah, and, and I mean, I mean, you know, I love the book The Snowball. Um, you know, like in a, like in a funny way, but like despite the fact that's like a very famous book, I think it is underrated. But like the one thing that is clear as day from that book that you don't get, like you know, from the other Buffett books, is just he hates being on boards of directors. Like and. I think there's a quote in there that like his worst, you know, well, you know, well, business decision like was ever being on boards. You don't feel that way. Oh yeah, by absolutely. Um, <laughs> like I, like I don't love being on boards of directors. No, it's. It's fun when you have the like the right well situation when you're all, you know, what kind of, you know, like when you have a strategy and like you're all, you know, moving in the same direction. You have a good CEO, like that's great. But you know, the difficulty with being on a board is that, you know, and like people talk about it as a cush job, but like when anything goes wrong, it becomes a twenty four seven job. But yet you're kind of, you know, like you're dealing with limited information and it's hard. And if you get into things like when you have to hire a new CEO or if you have like a scandal or like an accounting issue, that stuff is extremely difficult. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. I mean, if the CEO is right, then um, much uh, is solved by that. And I think Buffett mentions the same, actually, that... uh, I mean, conflict of interest uh, disappear more or less when the CEO is right. The hard thing is, of course, to av- evaluate if the CEO is right. Yeah. Um, about, uh, I mean, we've, we've talked about management a bit, and I think we'll go- get back to that. But uh, <clears throat> shareholder base is, of course, important at, as well. How can a company build the right shareholder base, would you say? Like, it's funny, you know, this is a question that, like, I haven't, you know, I really thought about it that much, you know, from the perspective of the company. It's, it's, you know, like I've always been a little bit fatalistic of, of a company gets the shareholders that it gets. And a lot of it is, you know, well, you know, index funds, et cetera, that like that is going to happen regardless. But, but, you know, there's been, well, more people like, you know, Larry Cunningham has a book, which is about, you know, well, building the shareholder base, you know, I think it's called quality shareholders. And, like I haven't really thought about it from from that perspective, and I think that they're clearly right that like you do see companies that 
successfully, you know, you know, they take what Berkshire Hathaway did, you know, like where Buffett, like essentially like over decades trained his shareholder base in, you know, what they do, which is like essentially just like you say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And like, it finally sinks in about being like a long-term organization and you see um, other companies doing it in a, in a shorter time frame, And it does like seem like they've been successful at it. Like you have these uh, companies that have kind of built these, you know, a compounding growth, like investment bait, like it's like little cults, right? It's like, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, well, a cultish like investor bases, like you do see that. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I think that ultimately, like, as I said earlier, like good CEOs are good at telling you what you want to hear. And I think they've become much more sophisticated at like at speaking the language of shareholders. And so I'm pretty cynical about it. Like in some ways, like I think like they say all the right things, but then you do see situations that, you know, will kind of blow up because they ultimately don't deliver. Um, So I guess that's a long way of not really providing an answer. I'm not sure (laughs) how well it can really be done, but at the same time, like I think a key part of, like, like a being a CEO is communicating with your shareholder base, right. And explaining what you're trying to do. So when things go wrong, like, you know, you have like enough credibility to explain why it went wrong. Like if they know where you're trying to go and you don't get there, um, if you've just been bullshitting them the whole time, then you're in a way worse position. Like than if you haven't, and if you're open about the risks and then the risks, you know, present themselves or become realized, then I think that you're better off for it. So like, I do think that a key thing to being a good CEO is to kind of like, like, you know, to manage expectations, right. So more or less we as investor needs to, we need to follow the story. And, and if, if uh, something, uh, it not follows that story, then, then get out more or less. Yeah. I mean, like the hard thing with being an investor, like, again, is, um, you know, like I think it's important to to uh, to talk to management and to engage with them. I think a lot of people um, don't, but at, at the same time, it's you know, like you know, we're fiduciaries. Like, you know, people have given me money, um, you know, to essentially bequeath upon these corporations, and I think that we owe it to them to kind of, you know, get as good of a read on the people like, you know, that run these companies as we can, but it's very dangerous because, you know, CEOs are good at charming people and they're good at, you know, telling people what they want to hear. And, and it's like, that's like, it's always a delicate balance. Yeah. An important part is to look for what they are not telling you. And if things go south, what are they really telling you that, or are they covering those facts up? And that's of course hard to know, but if you, we at Red Eye, we, cover about 150 companies and we are also in the smaller space like growth companies usually not value as much but they are in the same market size that you are in that range basically and we have a quality rating and that is about 100 questions in total that our analysts like Niklas and I used before and one part of that is um, 
it's divided into three categories. So it's business people and financials. And the people side is really relevant for, for our discussion here. And, and one part of that is about communication. And yeah. if they have an open and transparent communication, for example. So it really ties well into that here. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I think like, you know, the area of, you know, well, small cap growth is a fascinating one because, you know, so much of it is just dependent on like on management and on the kind of like in your long thesis, there's this like succession of things that have to fall in place. And so the, the dynamic is very interesting because like you'll have a, like a lot of situations that don't work out, but like when you get one that works, they really, 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 you know, work. And so I think that building like a rigorous checklist of like, you know, around trying to find the ones that like that work, you know, probably makes sense. Um, yeah. I've never had the like the like the uh, the discipline to do that kind of thing. <laughs> to have a checklist, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Or just like to yeah, just like to keep in a hundred question checklist and. Yeah, you yeah, can take a look at stuff. our rating, or our CEO is re- he is uh, releasing a book later this year that is about those questions. So awesome! Yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah, because I I thought about great. all of this uh, from the last chapter of the book with BKF Capital, who are. It's yeah. really a capital, uh, like capital asset management company, and they are really saying that we invest for growth and we are long term. But then these activists activists come in and they are way too impatient and they just want to have money on the table today and they actually destroy the whole company. So I thought that was a really interesting chapter chapter to show yeah. like, that it's not always it's fa- good. It's a fascinating chapter. So it basically is about this company BKF Capital that is a money manager. And in addition to like to kind of traditional, you know, long only funds, they have some hedge funds, which are kind of hot and doing well, you know, multi-billion dollar hedge funds, which at the time this was in the nineties or maybe early aughts. I'm sorry. Yeah. I guess this was in the early aughts. Um, That's, um, you know, like a couple billion dollars at like in a hedge fund is a big deal. And, you know, and everyone in like in the industry at that point, like they knew this is a growth industry. And so you had these, you know, shareholder activist uh, hedge funds attacking this company that owned a hedge fund about how they, you know, they compensate their people. And it's a, like, it's an interesting situation. I mean, like it's easy to kind of to fixate on the outcome and the outcome was essentially that the insiders all walked and the stock went to zero. But you really, you know, like you see both sides of it and the, like there's always like, you know, you know, well, nuance in these well, situations and like the main activist in that one, this guy, Carlo, uh, you know, Cannell, um, like and I put this like in the book had had like, you know, like I think like a, like like a very good point of of like, I mean, he clearly like, you know, like acknowledges this was a disaster and that. um there was this huge destruction of value, but like, as he just will put it, it was just like, so stupid. Um, like the John Levin, like, you know, like it was in John Levin's power to find it like an outcome that would, that like would benefit everyone, you know? So it's interesting to kind of like, you know, you know, like to try to kind of assign blame because John Levin does was kind of the go, CEO, right? He's the CEO. Yeah. You know, 
I don't know. It's it's a like it's a fascinating you know uh, case, and it like it's easy to see both sides, and 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 it was also kind of easy to see how like you know you know with activism there are these kind of uh, tactics that you use like to court the broader shareholder base that like you know that you know that as we discuss in the book have evolved to kind of like fit the shareholder base of the time, and they kind of like use all these kind of classic tactics like attacking, you know, employment of family members and just like all of these things, which in the end really just like poured gunpowder on the fire. Um, but yeah, you know, like I wanted to have a chapter in the, in the book where the activism was a complete disaster. And, you know, this was one where it was like, you know, a richly valued company before the activists got involved and it literally went to zero. Talking about richly valued companies, um, how, how would you say um, uh, a CEO should run the company when the stock is overvalued? Um, and I, I don't think you answered it in the book. I think you have that question, but you don't answer it in the book. So, so I'm, I'm asking that question now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I mean, I posed the difficulty of it, and like in the like, um, you know, I forget the context actually, but you know, but I remember like, like, like I was at this uh, luncheon that was at the New York Public Library, um, where um, Eddie Lampert gave a talk, and it was kind of peak Eddie Lampert, you know, well, Sears was high flying, and he posed this question. Like I think he was asked about you know corporate governance, and he posed like a like a question and like like about you know like what happens in this kind of like whole equation if the if if the stock is overvalued you know you know how do you do like appropriate you know you know will governance and you know will motivate your team and you know you know will compensate them properly if this the stock is like, you know, uh, um, is ahead of itself. And I think it's, it's a real challenge. Like um, I have a friend who runs a company, like it's like, um, a, like a software company. They make, you know, a, um, you know, point of sale, you know, software for, um, for, uh, for, uh, for restaurants. And um, I've never talked to him like about this angle of it, but I think like, he's in a situation where he has, like some cultish investors and he has a stock that's like very richly valued considering their kind of core product isn't really growing as fast as I think a lot of investors like would like it to. And I think like, like that becomes like a challenge. Like if you're trying to build like a world-class organization, like if you're trying to get the best employees, like you don't want to, you know, we'll, you know, you know, we'll pay them in stock if like you're, it, like if you're nervous that it might go down. So, you know what? I mean, I think that's hard. I think you just have to focus on your core business. And then to the extent that you want to kind of play the capital allocation game, like and issue shares, like, like you know, then that's at your disposal. Um, I think the beauty of if you're in charge of a company that's, that's overvalued is in most uh, situations, you can generate cold hard cash out of that dynamic which when you're undervalued and like you want more money you can't <laughs> it's, it's like that is not at your disposal so 
Um, there's all these like issues with it, but in the end, it's probably a pretty decent, you know, problem to have if you have the capability of going to market. Yeah, you just need to avoid taking on more and more risk, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, and that's got to be such a like a like a temptation, right? To kind of to try to live up to the valuation. That's got to be hard. Yeah, definitely. Enron is a good example. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but talking about capital allocation, we notice like CEOs, they are often hired because they have a good record of being good business operators and salespeople and so on. But what do you think? Like, how can they choose between the best options, paying dividends or buying back stocks or buy a company or invest in a business? How, how are you thinking about that? I think it's, it's like, it's a real challenge. And like, and I think that's where the board can, you know, can play a role. Um, I mean, you know, just to take like the simplest example. So of your five choices, right? You can like deploy in your business, you can do dividends, repurchases, you can do M&A, you can pay down debt. If you just focus on dividends or repurchases, right? Um, you know, lots of companies like, you know, like pick a route, right? There's like a company called Callaway Nursery that I've been an investor in for a long time now, um, where a friend of mine, this guy, Peter came in, took control of it in, in 2016. And he basically is a dividend payer. When the cash builds up, he, you know, pays out a dividend. And, um, you know, one thing that people like don't realize as much as they should about you know, dividends is both the de-risking nature of it, that you're taking cash out of the business and you're returning it to shareholders and it is now diversified away from the business. And then the opportunity cost there of like, you know, like Peter began to pay dividends. I think the first one was in 2017. Uh, since that time on what was maybe a, a $2.50 stock when he took control, he's paid $3.50 in dividends. And it's not just the $3.50, like the shareholders have you know, gotten to deploy that $3.50 um, into a strong market. And so like for my firm and you know, for other Callaway shareholders, like you know, those dividends got invested into faster growing companies. Um, and then there are companies that do repurchases. Um, like there's this, uh, you know, company, um, you know, Jewett Cameron Trading, which is like a like a small, uh, you know, well company in the Pacific Northwest. It's an American company, and they make pet um, enclosures and well fences and stuff. Um, I don't own the stock, and it's like, it's not a like 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 it isn't like a business that you would call a good business, right? They have essentially a commodity product. They sell to a concentrated customer base. Like I think they have a customer who's like, you know, 30% of their sales. He's probably like, you know, Petco or some big box company, you know, Lowe's or something. Um, but what they've decided to do is to buy back shares. And they've like in the past, well, 10 years, they've like retired, like well, something like, you know, 65% of their shares. And, you know, their operating income per share has gone from like, you know, 35 cents a share to like, you know, well, over a dollar. And in that period, their earnings have largely been flat. Right. And so they've done very well with that strategy. Um, and so there are companies that 
that do both, you know, dividends and repurchase as well. And if you're going to ask a CEO, like, well, you know, what should we do? It's like, they need to kind of understand the nature of like, what, like, is it about dividends and repurchases that is, you know, uh, you know, different? Like, like, and I would say the fundamental difference is there's the, the bag holding aspect of it. Right. It's like, if you go with, you know, repurchases, like you're basically taking all the cash flow of the business and you're concentrating the ownership in the remaining holders. And if you go with dividends, you are giving away the capital to shareholders and they get to take it elsewhere. And so the question really is going to boil down to the durability of the business. If the business is like super durable, repurchases are better because like you can really drive crazy value with them. But you know, dividends, if you're not sure, are way less risky from that perspective. And this is the the kind of a, a, of a decision where like, if you just task the CEO, um, they're probably going to be biased to repurchases because they're probably going to have an inflated view of durability or they should, if they're like an optimistic, <laughs> you know, CEO. So I think like these decisions, it really helps when the board can provide some clarity and some insight. And, you know, just on that one, it's just important that the board like understands like the bet you're really making when you're choosing one over the other. And so just to take that example, it's like, you're really making a bet on, you know, on like on, you know, on durability of the business. Is it going to be here after all these repurchases and then be on kind of, you know, the opportunity costs of, of, you know, returning the cash now, like that's like a, like a big factor too. So these are things that I think that the board needs to get involved with and the, like to do that, it helps if the board, you know, will understands these things. And so, you know, like, uh, I find, especially with, with something like repurchases, like people don't really understand what they are, uh, how they drive value, like what the risks are with them. And so, yeah, like to me, it's important that like, like that people, you know, will get these things at the board level and they help the, the CEO make these decisions because there's always going to be a bias um, on the, you know, like for optimism, like on the part of the CEO. And with capital allocation, it's like, you know, there's like the classic quote from Buffett that what is good, like at one price is, you know, stupid at, or, you know, well, smart at one price is uh, stupid at another price. That's like the first rule of capital allocation. In your examples, I mean, you show that um, more or less the story of the company um, is either it's a dividend paying company or it's a company that buys back stocks, but with that example you 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 mentioned now, it should the be, the optimal way more or less should be pay a dividend if the if the stock is overpriced and and you don't have good allocation alternatives elsewhere, uh, and if it's undervalued, then buy back shares. See, not necessarily though. See, because I think um, that a lot of it is you know, like to me the key calculus would be pay a dividend if you're not sure about the, you know, durability. Um, and durability is hard. Like it's easy to like, like to say, Oh, you know, you know, Jewett Cameron clearly did the best, like the right thing, but 
like they could have lost their biggest customer or, you know, like things, you know, what could have gone wrong. So like, to me, it's more like about your risk tolerance for like, if I'm going to embark on a 10 year, you know, you know, repurchase program, because it takes time. Like it's like, you have to do it year after year after year and reduce that share base. Like it takes time. Like you need to be confident that you have the kind of business that is going to be there at the end of that time period. And the interesting thing that I found is like, if you really break out the numbers, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, of a cliche that like repurchases are, you know, will only good if you, you know, you know, do them at a, like at a big discount, but that's not necessarily true. It's like, um, like if you do like, you know, like a little model of a hypothetical company and you toggle like the price that they're buying back shares, like even if you like, you know, you set your like your model to buy back the shares at a like a premium where you kind of will set, you know, like your market prices, um, it will do well. And of course, the dynamic is that well, durability. If like like if you have a business that that trades at fifteen times earnings and then like your model goes for ten years and they're durable. At the end of that ten years, I mean, like I guess like to your point, like I guess the stock was undervalued. But, um, you know, but I think that ultimately the cliche that you need to buy it at a crazy discount is a little bit overstated. Um, it's more just the business needs to, to, to still be there. Really thoughtful answer. Thanks for that. So another option of allocating capital is, of course, to buy other companies. And in the, in the book, you mentioned the 1980s boom of M&A. And we see that today as well with the SPACs and everything. What's what's your view on the current environment and like is this sustainable? I mean, sus- sustainable is like it always like depends on your time horizon, right? But yeah. like, will people be buying companies in the future? Yeah, it's like like you'll have these like dips and rises, and you'll like you had the eighties and like the like the '90s was a big deal decade, but just in different ways. Um, so there's always going to be M and A, and and, you know, like the seduction there is, again, like, you know, well-executed M&A uh, drives well, more value than anything, right? Um, it's like, you know, both the best and the worst business outcomes that, like, you know, that you can think of, like, they tend to, at some level, like, be driven by M&A, right? I guess Berkshire Hathaway is a good example. Yeah, it's like you got your Berkshire Hathaway and then you have your like your Enron. And if Enron had just stuck to the pipelines and not done lots of deals, it's like, yeah, there's the fraud and all this other stuff. But it's like really the the big outcomes are driven by M&A and and people love big outcomes. And um, and you just like you see lots of examples of like uh, I remember when I first got in the business. uh, um. I worked at a distress hedge fund and like we looked at lots of roll-ups because that was always like a, like a nice opportunity to, you know, like to short debt or just, you know, like to find things that you could short. And, and I remember just looking at Danaher and just being like, geez, I mean, just like unbelievably successful at rolling up these like really shitty companies. Um, 
and folding them into their business and like like effectively I mean, like, I'm not like, you know, very well educated on Danaher. I was, you know, not ever a shareholder, but it feels like they were like essentially just like a, you know, like a, you know, like a publicly traded, you know, private equity firm, you know, with a platform and, um, and they built tons of value doing it and it, and it didn't look particularly hard from the outside. So like, there's always going to be this, like, you know, uh, seduction of, um, of like how good um, M&A can be when it is done right. And, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, like is obviously the most extreme example. And is this something you look at in your, for your fund or privately? Um, yeah. I mean, you have to, as a, I mean, as a, like as a public company investor, I think it's impossible to, to do our job like without, you know, Uh, you know, we're coming across a lot of companies that do acquisitions. So, but I don't have a, like a real philosophy on it. Um, You're opportunistic. And yeah, it's just, but you know, like the one thing, like, I guess that I would say is, and it's a little bit back to the, like the point that we touched on earlier of kind of um, like incentives and alignment. It's like, like, you know, like, you know, I never just like, uh, you know, we'll paint the, like the picture of just like, Oh, like this is an aligned will CEO. So they're, you know, um, you know, always going to be aligned and I don't have to think about it like in the future. It's like, I never just give people the benefit of the doubt of always being good acquirers, which is probably a flaw. Right. It's like, like I probably missed, like I didn't buy Danaher. Right. So I just have a hard time getting there on like, is like, the secret sauce going to be durable. So, you know, I bought a lot of companies that have had successful acquisitions, but, but I rarely kind of build into my bull case. They're going to keep on doing successful, great acquisitions. Like, I, I mean, I was just like, I, like I read the other day, um, a pitch on a, a like a European, you know, a, um, a flooring company. And it was an interesting pitch and like, it seems good and it seems like a good team and they have a history of good acquisitions, but just the stock was valued such and the pitch hinged on just this future execution of a pretty significant amount of accretive, you know, uh, deals. And I have a hard time getting there on those. Yeah, there's but, many on I'm sorry. There are many unknown factors in that and with credit and everything also. Yeah. Yep, exactly. How would you define your your strategy uh, as an investor to to beat the market? You know, I really am a classic, you know, value investor. And it's funny because I feel like you know, like we you know, do all these things like that people mock, like I quote Warren Buffett in our investor letters, like, you know, our Q2 letter, I talk about Benjamin Graham and, you know, Warren Buffett and I and like, you know, and I joke in it, like, you know, like, I think we've done like 60 or something, you know, quarterly letters and probably three quarters of those have had either Graham or Buffett in them, you know, <laughs> and it's a, you know, and like, you know, well, people love to kind of shit on the kind of 
like this, like this, like this, like this, like this dodgy value guy that quotes, you know, Buffett. But like, I really think about my strategy as um, the classic, I look at shares as, you know, well, fractional ownership in a business and I buy at a margin of safety. And I think you often get this opportunity when you take like a little bit of a step back and you look at the long term, you know, where the like the like the market really doesn't look, you know, three to five years out. And it's not always a quantitative, it's not always a, like a model. Like you just, you know, sometimes like you think about the like the end game and you're just like, well, this is clearly going to be worth more. Well, sometimes like you see the kind of the path to growth. Um, you know, like I don't get fixated on, you know, you know, will trailing earnings or will, you know, will multiples or or you know, will any will kind of like you know, magic formulas, like, like I just try to be, you know, thoughtful, um, to do good research on businesses and find situations where I see an outcome, you know, three to five years away, that's clearly very different from what other people see. And I think that's what value investing is. And it's like, so in some ways simple, it's hard to execute. And like, I've had long periods of like, of like, you know, feeling like, geez, like it's been a while since I've had a hit. Like, am I good at this anymore? <laughs> but fortunately, I feel like it it always comes back around. Like it it keeps working. And like to me, we quote a 90-year-old man and a guy who was born 130 years ago because there are some enduring lessons in, you know, in what they say. And, you know, I just think that value investing works. And it works the kind of old fashioned way. And, and I get that. And I've seen lots like of, like of, you know, of value guys that, that like that have a hard time with, you know, uh, growthy multiples or, or things that look, you know, superficially expensive, but like, to me, just, it's always been about, you know, what is this, you know, going to look like in five years, you know? So like, like I've never felt like, I had to buy like like a stock at less than 10 times earnings or anything like that. So so again, I I mean I gave you kind of a lame answer, but I think that I describe my strategy as value investing. <laughs> it's good. I mean, uh, yeah, some of the discussion uh, about value versus growth have truly distorted uh, that as you as you define value investing is maybe yeah. the, the real. And it's kind of funny because that is a thing that like that people have said forever, like that Benjamin Graham and, you know, like in Buffett, like have said forever. And, um, you know, Graham was, you know, you know, more skeptical of growth and uncertain of it. Um, which I think if you, if in the prime of your career, the great depression happens, that is probably like a reasonable mindset, but you know, like the good value investors have always like discussed, you know, uh, you know, well, growth as a component of value. Yeah. I remember when I sat with the intelligent investor, the, when I, when I started as an investor, it was actually one of the few, yeah, I think it was maybe number two of investing books I read. And uh, I used that formula <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where actually, I mean, uh, as you say, I mean, he takes up growth as a comp, component i think i think he has seven uh, uh questions or something like that where 
the company needs to have at least some growth. And I mean, as we discussed, I mean, if you buy a company that's not growing at all, then uh, I mean, that's not really if you if you intend to hold the company for for the long term and be a buy and hold investor, then I mean, if it's not growing, then yeah, it will be hard yeah. for well, an investor to earn a You know, and just to to tie back, like to dear chairman, it's like if you're buying a business that is not growing, everything else has to be right about it. Right. It's like the because there's going to be all of these pressures on the governance. Um, like the ramifications of, of like like of a bad decision, a bad allocation are so much worse if it's a melting ice cube that like, you can make a lot of money by buying those businesses. Like look at, you know, uh, Jewett Cameron or Callaway's Nursery. They're both examples of like not really well growing businesses, although Callaway's has been with the pandemic. Um, but you got to get the allocation right then. And that's hard. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, people fixate on cheap, you know, trailing multiples to a fault. And if you're buying a very cheap stock, like there's a reason it's cheap often, and you need to really be sure that, um, that they're allocating right. Yeah. And the other end of the spectrum is the growth taken to its extreme where you can say that, okay, but this company is going to grow this, 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 and this much. So any price makes sense because you can always calculate it back. But yeah. then if the price yeah, is already I mean, moved, like, you know, I mean, not any price, but it's, I mean, I've been in situations where just like the market is like nowhere near where I see the end game. And it's not that I would pay any price, but um, it's just, it just, well, like it seems like, you know, it's like you have a long opportunity like to buy the stock. And, you know, I mean, it's funny, like a good example, like we owned um, uh, Popeye's, which is a fried chicken chain. It was, you know, one of our best investments and we owned it for, um, the, you know, they got bought by Burger King shortly after I finished the book. So we probably owned it. I don't know. I think we owned it for like 10 years. And you know, they never really did, you know, value added capital allocation. You know, they had a great CEO who was probably my favorite CEO. Um, and she was always very conservative with the balance sheet. Um, and their CFO for the beginning, like I owned it from 09 until they got bought by Burger King. And their, oh, I'm sorry, 08. Uh, 2008 and their CFO for at least half of that tenure was like, to me, not very good. And, you know, I remember I once asked him about, you know, they began to do repurchases at some point. And I just asked about, like, I asked a, like, you know, a question about timing the repurchases just to gauge how he thought about it. And he, he completely like, yeah. And about, a price and stuff. And like, um, he answered, well, you really want to get them done early in the quarter because then they'll have the most like impact on your, you know, like, you know, on the weighted average share count early in the year. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like for quarters too. I mean, yeah. the year, the quarter, the whole thing, it was like, like it didn't have anything to do. Like, like he, like it wasn't about, you know, driving value. Right. Like the price was... didn't matter. It was, you know, um, but just, the situation and like 
the growth and, you know, they would have added even more value if they um, had been aggressive on their allocation, but they didn't need to be. It was like, like an incredible outcome, you know, like, uh, you know, great CEO and, you know, her conservatism on capital allocation, you know, didn't produce, like, I guess, an optimal outcome in the eyes of shareholders, but like, you know, that was a very low risk path to growth and profits. And, you know, it just, it, like, it didn't matter that, like, the capital allocation, like, you know, like, was probably not what, like, a Warren Buffett would do. Or, I mean, it actually probably was what a Warren Buffett would do, but what, like, an aggressive hedge fund would do. Uh, it's hard when you see some flaws and you still have, to, like, everything is never going to be perfect. So you just have to yeah. deal with it, like, and, yeah. like, when you're investing, what would you say, what are your most common biases and... How do you deal with them, like practically, like mistakes or um, biases, like that are facing you? Probably, for me, I, um, I mean, I'm complacent, right? Like I can be too complacent, and so I can let opportunities slip by without, you know, giving them my full attention in the in the time period when I need to give them my full attention. That's not really a a flaw in my pro in my actual like investment process. I would guess that probably I'm most fallible with the kind of classic. If I know someone who's smart, who's also involved in this thing, it's easier for me to kind of cut corners on some key issue that I haven't really wrapped my brain around. And, you know, I've kind of, you know, like early in my career, I really, to a fault, uh, you know, prided myself on, you know, finding my own ideas and like not buying things that like that, like that other people were in. Um, and I think I've learned over time that that's like, you know, dumb. It's like, I've been in this business a long time and I've developed a good network of friends who are good at what they do. And like to not use that network for idea generation is dumb. And I mean, there were, t I mean, I bet that if in late 2018 that, you know, someone had posted Popeyes on the value investors club, I might've been like, maybe I shouldn't buy this. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, like I really wanted to just like to be my own, just like to have my own stuff. And so oh, yeah. I really, yeah. And I, and like, I've really learned over time that that was, uh, you know, misguided and like I, you know, you know, we'll definitely look at what, you know, people I respect like, but then you always have to fight that, like, you know, well, this thing's really good. And my friend Eddie thinks it's really good. And there's this one thing I, that like kind of freaks me out, but well, he figured it out. So maybe I should just buy it. It's like, you always have to fight that. So that's probably the biggest thing. And, and then You know, one thing also is I think that the more that you do this, that you do develop a, like, I think like a better, you know, short-term trading gauge, you know, it's like, I think that if I like quit my job and became a day trader, I think I could be pretty good at it. Um, and so, because I think a, like you, like that you learn, well, not to trade every day, but you do just, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's like you see, well, short-term opportunities a lot. 
And there was one just a couple of days ago where there was a company that did a stock offering and the stock tanked on the offering. And that's the thing that you see all the time where the kind of core people get pissed off and you have like a one day, like 15% drop. And then in a week, it's like back to flat. And it's like those things, they're always kind of tempting. And as you get older, you're just like, oh, this is definitely going to work. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I still try not to do those. And they're probably like a waste of time and they probably, that's probably like a real, you know, you know, like a slippery slope. And I, you know, and, you know, and I've definitely kind of like traded my own positions in ways where if I had just like sat tight and held, I would have like done better. Yeah. I kind of tried the day trading as well a bit uh, after I was a stock analyst. And then I thought also when you see those opportunities, it's so easy. But when yeah. you're actually sitting there, I found I found it so hard. Like the mental challenge of, okay, the stock is continuing to drop. Should I buy more? Should I sell here? Should I stop? Yeah, you really need I mean, to have a strategy. That's a key thing: is not to just sit there, right? Yeah, it's like I, like I try to not just sit at a screen thinking about if I should do a particular trade, <laughs> yeah. because the more you just sit there the more you're going to be in, you know, the desire for action, like will motivate you, you know, like uh, we had this stock where it was our biggest position. And, you know, like with Popeye's, I had kind of learned the lesson of, I knew that thing was going to work out, but then, you know, once it got to be like a really big position, like I just trimmed it and trimmed it and trimmed it because of, you know, prudent portfolio management. And so we had one, this company called The Joint, which is like a chiropractic chain, which I just felt was like the next Popeyes. Um, I mean, there were lots of, you know, like, like there were lots of differences, but, but like to me, like it was that kind of a story where it's like, I want to go to the beach for like 10 years and just see where it is at the end of that 10 years. And I bet I'm just going to be shocked. And like, you know, what's going to happen. And so I told myself, I'm not going to sell the stock as it goes up. And I have a feeling, you know, during the pandemic, like I was at home more. I just was like out more. I was doing a lot of bird watching. I just had this feeling that if I'd been like at my desk all day, as the stock just went up and up and up and up, like that I would have sold it. And it was like, I don't know. It's like, you have to fight that like that urge for action. And, um, and I think the challenge of day trading is just not constantly trading. But I think that again, it's like, like, I think that people who do what we do have like learned to see the occasional, you know, short-term opportunity. And I think that we could do it where you just like, you know, like you actually do those. <laughs> yeah, I think so. The hard thing is that when you're, when you're in a position, it's hard to do something else. You kind of have to totally. like wait and then you, once you have sold it, then you can re relax. But while you, yeah. while you own it, it's really hard. I think uh, totally. it's better to read books. Yeah. <laughs> but That's uh, my next book too. It's going to be about, you know, how to day trade for the long-term investor. Oh. Day trading for the long-term investor. <laughs> I don't know if that is called day trading. <laughs> trading without a day in the name. Yeah. Problem is you don't hear too many successful, you don't hear about too many successful day traders for the long term. 
No. <laughs> but don't you know, like, like that Buffett could be a kick-ass day trader? Yeah, maybe that's the secret sauce. I guess the, the <laughs> ones who have survived, they don't want to tell you their secrets also. <laughs> but something I thought about uh, when it comes to biases, because you are a major owner in many of like small, pretty illiquid stocks. And when mm-hmm. you have that position, it's quite hard for you to just get out. So commitment bias must be quite strong. Yeah. It could be strong. Yeah. Like, and I definitely will fall in love with companies too. Yeah. It's like, you know. How do you handle um, that? To be rational, I guess. Pro- probably not optimally, you know. Um, I think the beauty of, you know, value investing is that um, if you buy with enough of a margin of of safety, you get some leeway to be an idiot around the fringes. And um, I've definitely had situations where um, I probably kind of like, you know, you know, um, uh, stuck to the story uh, too long. Um, but again, it's like, it's this, you know, there's this huge balance of like, you need to be detached enough to not, you know, uh, you know, constantly be forced into action, but you need to be engaged enough to be totally on top of the situation. You need to be like to have the commitment to a position where you can get some bad data or some bad calls, or you can talk to like a vendor who hates the company. It's, you know, like with, you know, like with every investment, you're going to get like the one call, not one, you'll get a bunch of calls from a person who knows more about the business than you do. And that thinks it's a total shit show. Like you're going to get those calls and you need to have the, the confidence in your long-term view to kind of override those. And that's not a conducive mindset to not also like falling in love with the situation. So it's just like, there's always going to be trade-offs. Like you just can't be an automaton that's just not being able subject to those forces because they're, you know, contrasting forces. Yeah. And you're facing that more when it's a public company where, where you need to face that volatility. But if you would own any private yeah. companies, you don't have that situation as much, I guess. Or do you own any private company? Not in the fund. Oh, all right. um, but I'm involved in some personally. You know, I mean, the, you know, the thing I would say, I mean, it's interesting because I always get asked about activism, um, like from people who want to, like they're new to activism, they're involved in a company where, you know, there needs to be change. And they want to do something and they want to know how. And so like, they'll call me up, like I read your book and, you know, and the first thing like I'll say is like, okay, well like, I'll give you some tips, but the first thing is to get a good lawyer <laughs> and, you know, cause like it's ultimately it's, it's a legal process and you need to kind of play, you know, right from that perspective. Like you see people who just, they don't get good legal advice and they'll just have this long engagement with the company, lots of emails back and forth. And they just like have hosed themselves because they just, um, you know, like have, they've, they've gotten too close to management and that can all be, you know, used against them now. Like all their supportive emails are now, you know, you know, will fodder for the company. And so I'll tell them that. But then like the other thing that I'll tell them is like, be really aware if your first activist campaign is your biggest position. That's like a recipe for disaster. 
because it's like you need to be like like an activism you need to be willing to kind of to lose like a public fight like you need to be willing to kind of look not great well publicly but get the right outcome you know russ perot like if you're like afraid to lose yeah like you don't want you know then that's a bad situation and if it's already your like you know your biggest position and then you get active in it and then it becomes a liquid and i mean like you're gonna fall in love with that position like you're gonna like lose your perspective on it so that's a thing that like i always you know stress to people it's been i think i think we could go on and on and on about these uh, subjects but i mean Investing by the books, uh, where we come from, are really we have, we are studying books and reading books, and we loved your book. We, we never talked about investing books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now, now we have the time. So um, okay, good. <laughs> do you have any any good one? I mean, it's I I usually think it's it's hard to ask that questions, but that question yeah. because it's it's really subjective. I mean, it's usually at least myself. I I read a book that I find will help me right now. And I guess that's yep. the case for everybody. But but do you have any general books that you recommend? Yeah. I think also like the hard thing is like that the you know well time matters. It's like, you know, you know, one of my favorite books is uh Joel Greenblatt's um uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. It's probably the book that had the most um impact like on me as an investor. But it's been like 20 years since I read that book. So I tell people it's like my favorite investing book, but I, I mean, I should go back and read it at some point. Um, was it because I was at the time just he like taught a different you, person? Was it at the time he taught you at Columbia, or? Yeah, that's the only way that I heard of it is that like I happened to to fall into his section, and then I got his book and I loved it. Um, so um, you know, I was very lucky in that respect. Um, and then there's also the dynamic of now we know lots of people that write books and like, you don't want to like <laughs> forget your friend's book or something. But, um, you know, I mean, like, I love the Greenblatt book. I love, um, I really do like this, like the, like uh, the snowball. Like, I think that's a, like a viable book. I'm a little behind. Like I haven't read a lot of the newer investing books. Um, How was it and, when uh, when Buffett recommended your book in 2018 that he uh, had it in on the AGM? Must have been. Well, you know what's interesting is like he never actually publicly uh, recommended it. Like he put it in the bookshop, which is awesome, but like he never actually put it in the letter. And um, I knew he liked it. Like I got you know word back. So, like. I had sent a galley to Carol Loomis and she had written back that like she'd already heard about it from Warren. And then I had another friend who knew Warren, who he gave it to her. So I knew he liked it. And, um, and so that year that it came out, I was kind of waiting for, I was like, maybe he'll mention it in the letter. And he actually didn't. He mentioned, Uh, Jeremy Miller's book, um, uh, The Warren Buffett Ground Rules, which was actually put out by the same publisher. Um, and interestingly, that year at the meeting, Carol Loomis asked a question where she talked about my book. And she even well, said that he 
like had recommended it in the letter. <laughs> and so like, like it kind of, you know, well, you know, like it made me think, well, did he have it in an earlier draft? Like, was it, you know, you know, was he going to recommend it? But like, he never actually publicly recommended it, except that he did include it in the bookworm uh, store. Um, but it's cool. I mean, you know, the, the book, all of the, like, I don't, like I wrote the book cause I like to write and I just, like, I thought it was fun and it was like a project, like, you know, like doing a marathon or something where like I wanted to have done it. Um, but like, I didn't know what like was going to come out of it. And I've just been blown away by just like that kind of stuff is well, so fun. And I've met lots of people that, that like, that like to help my business, like the returns for my fund are way up uh, post book, which I think has a lot to do with all the, like the people that I met and, you know, I just think the whole thing has been, you know, so valuable that like, you know, like, you know, I was going to do it like um, initially under a pen name and, and my book agent was like, no way. (laughs) Um, But I'm really like, because I thought that like, you know, in the hedge fund business, if you're perceived as a, like uh, as a, um, as a dilettante, then people are really mean to you. It's like, you know, they like to kind of, you know, take down people. And, and, you know, and I just thought, well, if I do a book, it's going to like, you know, people are probably not gonna be that nice about it because I'm supposed to be a fund manager, but it turned out to be awesome. So like, you know, like that was an unfounded concern. Great. And do you want to write any more books? I do. I just nice. like I need the right idea. You know. Day trading. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. It's such misery. And a year as a day trader. Yeah. <laughs> like how can I write when I can be so successful day trading? It's just like I you know, like you only have, you know, you know, so many hours in the day. Yeah. But um, uh, but would you like to read more than you do? You say you don't read that much lately, or are you reading classics? Well, you know, we like we sold an investment, so like I have all this cash. I've been looking at investment ideas. Mm. Um, I don't know. Like I mean, I'm reading the the Sackler book now. Um, um, you know, Empire of Pain, which is great. Um, it's you know fascinating. Like I like these what kind of business behind the scenes business books. You know, like, you know, one thing that like I've been enjoying is um, the guy who wrote Bad Blood did a, like a podcast, you know. So like when, you know, Theranos went to, um, you know, into, you know, like, you know, all of the litigation and the shareholder suits and the and like the criminal like investigation all of this will new material, like all of the texts, like between Elizabeth and Sonny all became like, if not public, like, like, you know, you know, like available to reporters. And um, so there's just all this will new material. And so, so John Carreyrou did a, like a podcast and I was not interested at all. It was like, I think like a lot of us just, you know, read bad blood and it was good. And that's like, that's all I need from that. Like I have like fatigue over that whole story, but then I listened to the first episode and it was awesome. <laughs> so I, um, I've been enjoying that too. It's called bad blood, the final chapter. Um, we'll check that out. 
Yeah, but there are like there's a lot of new like like you know like the William Green book I want to read. There's a lot of new books that I want to read. I just like I haven't. You can start um, with listening to our episode with with William Green. I will. Yeah. Oh, all right. Let's do that. The one before you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do think that the snowball is awesome. Like, if you guys can get on Alice uh, Schroeder, that would be cool. Yeah, that would that that would be fantastic. Um, so Jeff, this has been a really great conversation. Um, where can our audience follow you? I'm on Twitter, uh, Jeff um, underscore Graham. Uh, you can always email me, um, at like at banderapartners.com. I'm around. I've become less good at the kind of, you know, we'll meet for coffee thing. Like I don't really do that anymore because I'm at home more. There's been a pandemic but- or is a pandemic, so. Yeah, exactly. That's a good reason. You know, but I, you know, but I try to be responsive and like, I'm always happy to talk about stocks. Great. Well, let us know if you come by Stockholm for a coffee. All right. I think hopefully November, like, uh, like if they lift the ban, then I'm going to be in Sweden before the end of the year. We'll hope for that. Thank you so much, Jeff Graham on Dear Chairman. Take care. All right. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze, and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.